Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, be sure to check out all of our content. We only have 20 of the most recent episodes on Spotify and iTunes. If you want to get access to the 200 plus episodes, uh, be sure to go to www.focuscompound.com slash podcast, and that will bring you to an app. Uh, it's just a web page right now. You could actually download it to your homepage, uh, but we're actually having iOS and an Android app in development right now uh, where we will push out everything uh, by there. Uh, $7.95 a month, you get access to the backlog, you get Focus Compound dailies and then you also get behind the scene videos from jeff and i and we did it the other day and it was a lot of fun it's just me pulling out this camera right here if you're watching and uh filming whatever is on our mind so it's a lot of fun so be sure to check out that focuscompound.com slash podcast so in today's podcast podcast or slash app slash podcast okay is what it is yeah um uh, but um in today's episode we are going to be talking about um you know how hindsight's always twenty twenty, and things you would do different okay. going back to the beginning of your career. A lot of people, um, you know, uh, that listen or could be, you know, at the early stages of their career. Maybe they're always looking to model themselves after other investors. So let's go back to when you first got interested in investing. I think we we have talked about this, but we never dedicated a full podcast to it. Maybe other than sure. like our first couple ones, okay. when we're like doing and getting to know Jeff and Andrew. But let's go back to it and let's see if we could. Um, you know, help people out along the way. So when did you first get interested in investing? Well, in investing, so not really as a career, but investing my own money and stuff, I was age 14. And then about five years later, age 19 is the career that had to do with writing about investing and those sorts of things. So it's more of a direct thing from there, from 19 to 34 is the last 15 years. Um, but I've been investing for about 20 years. So as an investor, yeah, it started out 20 years ago. And then how would you start out as an investor? Were you always, I mean, cause this is the thing that I find interesting yeah. is the way that you always thought about investing early on, mm-hmm. um, even before you had some sort of framework and I'll let you explain it and okay. I'll tell you what I thought was interesting when I heard the story, but how'd right. you first so start first off? First of all, I started investing things I was very familiar with. So we've mentioned some of them before. I just did a focus compounding daily, uh, like an article thing about uh, some of these. So I invested in things like Blue Rhino, Coinstar, and Village Supermarket. All three of those were experiences that I, uh, products that I experienced firsthand by um, being in, a, I worked as a cashier at Village Supermarket at their shop rights in New Jersey. And uh, that was a publicly traded company, so I invested in that. But I also invested in Blue Rhino because I saw that, and that was one of the first propane tank exchange things I saw, and I thought it was a great um, concept. I, I said in the article, actually, it was my most venture capital type thing, and that it was basically uh, my interest in the business was purely uh, initially because of how interested I was in the product. Um, cause I, you know, grilled and stuff and it was a real pain before a propane tank exchange to do that. Um, and I thought it was a great product that way. Coinstar similar, uh, they would hand over vouchers to me as the cashier. And I noticed how little, uh, floor space a Coinstar machine takes up. And more than that, I noticed that people didn't really realize the commissions they were paying on it. And they would always say like, isn't this great? I paid for all my groceries with this like cash that coins that I found and stuff. So I thought that was a great business, looked into it and everything. And then, uh, I did invest in some other things. Uh, Activision, I was very big in video games as a kid, uh, PC games and Activision was very big in PC games and owned most of the big brands, um, of the sorts of things that I played and stuff. 
how did you actually get interested? Like, why did you? I mean, you know, a lot of times when people get interested, it's because maybe somebody else in the family is interested in investing. Their uncle buys them a stock when they're young or aunt buys them right. a stock of a share of Disney and they have a uh-huh. certificate. And you actually do have certificates. I, don't, I have yeah, some that I bought later. And yeah, stuff. Some, I'm looking at them right now. Usually because they have some connection. Uh, all of them do have some connection to me, my family, my experiences with stocks or with um, things from like Buffett or Graham or those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, no, I actually didn't get interested that way. I eventually would, I think we said this before, talk with my dad about stocks every uh, week. Um, but he, you said that you guys would talk because he knew that was something you were interested in. I was so like more what, than he was. He was in financial services, but not in any way related to stocks. But what got you interested? That's what I'm trying to get at. I don't know. Okay, so it I just mean, happened. <laughs> it was a crazy time. The I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, the 1990s were a crazy time. I think I've said this before. Um, so it was a very strange time. And I uh, was interested because of things like compound interest inflation, like learning about that and thinking, oh, I should. I had a lot of savings. I had an unusually large amount of savings for a teenager. And um, so, like I said, I worked at that place. I didn't spend any of the money really from that place. Is that so. with the DVDs? Is that how you, you got all your money? How did you build up savings that, at that Well, age? I built up savings just by not spending money, basically, okay. yeah. So I was working at 14 and then, you know, um, I worked the maximum I was allowed, which I think is like 34 and a half hours or something in New Jersey at that time, if you're that age. And um, yeah, and I just saved all that money, basically. So uh, I wanted to do something with it. And my idea for what to do with it is something that compounds and stuff, protect it from inflation, all those sorts of things. And uh, the stock market seemed the best place to do it, but the stock market was insane. Mm. And if I had invested anyway, the way that it was going, uh, it wouldn't have gone. I mean, first of all, I would have lost half my money or something just like everybody else did at that time. And uh, it also just didn't make any sense to me. Everyone was like, the market can go up every day, you know? Yeah. See, that's the part that I think is interesting, right? And this is like, if you know you personally, this is like typical you, right? Is that you go into it knowing absolutely nothing, right. but you had enough logic to be like, wait, this is actually insane. So yeah. it's like you weren't interested in, you know, buying these companies at like 100, 150 P's that had no business, you know, attached to it or just these high flyers. That's my point. Yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. crazy, though. Anything that was in the news. No one, no one thought like that. So overpriced. It's yeah. kind of like, okay, and we're kind of going through that right now. The yes. people that have never been in the market they get into the market and they're buying sort of these high flyers they're buying companies that Mm -hmm. have uh you know are going into bankruptcy but that's just funny because obviously i know you personally and i'm like yeah that that doesn't surprise (laughs) me one bit that you got into it and you're like wait no this is when you absolutely knew nothing you're like this is still crazy enough to the point of not wanting to participate right so then i had to sort of teach myself accounting and those sorts of things because i obviously 14 i didn't know any accounting um so i started by just looking at like the enterprise value of the business i didn't know what enterprise value was (laughs) or anything but i did that because it's the most sensible thing it's hard when you're doing with just a share price but if you work back from that you can think of it as the whole company that you're buying which is a concept a 14 year old can understand but you can't really understand the share sort of thing and um and then i worked from those accounting things that seemed easiest to understand so the balance sheet was the easiest right and then the cash flow statement the income statements the most difficult to understand without any accounting background. And I focused on companies that were fairly easy to understand from that perspective. So, you know, the ones I just named were all very easy to understand from that way. I mean, I think I said before, to give you an idea of like my lack of understanding in, in these things, my dad really wanted a um, pharmaceutical company. They were big in the 90s, very popular stocks. And um, he wanted me to pick one. So I analyzed all the pharmaceutical companies that there were out there, the big pharma type things. Couldn't understand them at all. But I did find this company that did blood and urine testing and I could understand that. And so I suggested just that he buy that one instead. And it was like a more local company. It was pretty big in New Jersey. It eventually expanded to other things and stuff. But that's a simple enough thing. I understood the business Buy that instead of the big pharma things. You know, Um, how were you analyzing the companies back then? 
Um, on the computer or? Yeah, on the computer. So they already had, so um, a few years before I started, they had started the project on SEC uh, Edgar, what's today Edgar. Not all companies were yet required to file for that long a period of time. I think there was some grace period or something, but some things had gone up as early as 1995 filings. I don't remember when they were actually on the internet. Um, there was, I believe, Yahoo Finance started pretty early. Yahoo was early. MSN was also pretty early. So there were ways to find other things like that. Um, but primarily, I just, um, uh, they, you know, they had websites, mm-hmm. right? So the websites had existed for a couple years by this time. And so you could send to the companies to ask them for all their annual reports. And I usually just asked them directly to send as many past annual reports as they could. They weren't getting many requests and things back then. So they usually gave you a letter from the investor relations people from the request, and they would mail you at pretty high expense to the company. They mail it pretty fast. Um, a lot of annual reports. It was not uncommon to get seven of them or something. The company spent like $30 sending it to you. And um, it, they were just very helpful back then and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your dad from like the I store. some CEOs and stuff and just they would respond. Really? Yeah. So how I know the story, right? Your dad would, would said to you and how I guess you got introduced to Buffett and Graham, mm-hmm. but specifically Graham first was he's like, hey, you know, I read something about this guy and this sounds a lot about this, the right. way that you think. And it's yeah. almost like it put a framework on this theory that you had yes. naturally mm-hmm. yourself in your head. Exactly. And so that's when I read Security Analysis and the Intelligent Investor. I've said that before. I, I um, Amazon, I was like a, one of the real early Amazon customers, right? And I was really big into Amazon and buying books from there. That's all Amazon was doing at the time. And uh, I got the Intelligent Investor and Security Analysis um, right away from there and read them both that weekend. And it was just really eye-opening and stuff. It's kind of like what Buffett described when he read The Intelligent Investor. Uh-huh. And you didn't even know about Buffett at that point, did you? Or maybe you knew about it. I did. I mean, that's not the only so reason that people were covering Graham, to mm-hmm. be honest. The only re- Buffett was a bit of a celebrity already. And um, he all articles about Graham and stuff. There was no mention of Ben Graham except with Buffett. I mean, Graham was completely unknown at that period to most people other than like professional value investors because that all comes from the internet. Obviously, no one was talking about Ben Graham and stuff, but there would be like, Warren Buffett's teacher, Ben Graham. Warren Buffett had already been famous because, it, like, st- extremely famous with the um, Warren Buffett way. Mm-hmm. That book was like a bestseller and stuff, and that would have been a couple years earlier. So mm-hmm. he was actually very famous. Mm-hmm. So then, as the years go on, how do you think you've really involved as an investor? Uh, as many steps backwards as forwards, I would say. Um, so after that, I got interested in value investing, and I think some of that was a uh detour into stuff that was less successful in a period in the 2000s it was the easiest period for me investing was late 1990s early 2000s which was a great time for value investors i mean you had bad results i guess relative to the market for a year year and a half or whatever while the bubble happened but you bought these really cheap companies that were so easy to find and then you vastly outperformed the market in the following years like you'd be up you know 30% 30% in a year, the market was down 30%. It was very easy. Um, and that was true for a lot of value investors. You can go back and look at the value investors who are famous today. If they were managing small amounts of money, the early 2000s were an amazing time for them. And that's because it was so easy to buy things in the 1990s. The big stocks had to fall for so long to get remotely as cheap as the little stocks were that were rising up. And uh, anything that was boring, small, whatever, just got really, really cheap. It, it was crazy. Um, the very, like only in this year have I seen things that look similar to that, mm-hmm. where people just ignore some stuff that's small and boring and go for the stuff that's um, exciting. Mm-hmm. That, that just, and you had so few stocks leading the market. Like, on a, you know, the probably there was a long period where I'd say a lot of most stocks were probably down. 
and yet the biggest were up. So the 40 or 50 biggest stocks in America were driving like everything. And, you know, it was very common that way. I can't describe what the 1990s were like to you that way, because I mean, everyone who knew nothing about, I mean, members of my family, uh, whatever, like people would, so there was people who took early retirement stuff and then they're talking about what they're investing in and how much they're putting into it and stuff. And it's just based on like, oh, AOL, they send me things in the mail and they're growing really fast. I'll put a ton of my savings into that and stuff. It was very much that way. Were you a concentrated investor back then? Super concentrated, more concentrated than ever. Really? Yeah. Got Mm -hmm. it. So the years go on and you've always, you know, have employed this framework and have, um, you know, improved along the way. What do you think if you were talking to 14 year old Jeff, what advice would 34 year old Jeff give him? Well, you could read books and stuff, but I would say don't follow the standard approaches. So don't get big into like the dogma of whether you're a value investor or a growth investor or whatever. I think that was a bit of a mistake into focusing on statistical bargains and things like that. So use common sense more than that. Uh, That would be my biggest advice that way. Okay. So are you saying like from like don't go into net nets or stay away from more asset plays? Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. Worrying too much about that kind of thing, price to book, PE, EV to EBITDA, those sorts of things. Um, worrying about any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that it doesn't work. It works, but it the these statistical things work sort of in the same way that like writing a life insurance policy or something works. Okay, over a large, if you're going to have a big portfolio of, uh, if you're going to write millions of life insurance policies, you can have a computer figure out how it should price those policies based on a simple questionnaire of what they should figure out. Same thing. If we're gonna have a hundred stock portfolio, we should run it based on price to book and PE. I've talked about gram number, EV to EBITDA, things like that. But if you're going to write a couple giant policies or something, you're better off exhaustively researching uh, people looking at a thousand different people you could write policies on and stuff, following them around, learning everything about their life and things like that, and being able to price a few policies a bit better that way by learning about some unique situations. And I did that initially, and then I did that less. I diversified a bit more by my standards. I mean, diversified by my standards, not by other people's. Like I would own 10 stocks at once or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they'd be more value type stocks. I would have things where they might only be 5% or so. Now, why do you think you did that? Because people say that's the right way to do it and things like that from reading about value investing. It did become somewhat more difficult in the 2000s to find some things. So that was part of it. Um, and then I think largely as I, because when I was 19, I started a blog and all that stuff. Because of that, I came more and more into contact with people who invested that way. And so you, you start to have opinions more often about things. You write about things. It's very easy to having to write about things and stuff that that seeps over into um, your investing. Same as when mm-hmm. we talk on this podcast about something. If I say things on this podcast, there's a chance that will affect my investing, my actual decision making. Mm-hmm. And it is a very big deal that way. That's unusual. It's a thing that happens for us. That doesn't happen for most people. But it is a sort of a problem that way. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's, you know, kind of reminds me, of, Whitney Tilson has talked about this. I mean, love, hate or hate him, whatever. He did say something that was true when he asked, you know, somebody asked him about why did he underperform so much? And everyone listening could say, oh, well, this and that, blah, blah, blah. But one thing he did say, I don't know if it was meant to sound, you know, uh, arrogant. I don't think it was. I think there is logic in it was he said that he went from being just like a bottom up stock picker Mm -hmm. to really, he, I think he literally said, I think I just got too smart. But what he really meant by that that. when he kind of went on to talk about it was I, you know, started learning a lot more about investing. I started to have macro decisions. I started to let those decisions or those thoughts, um, you know, influence my 
regular bottom-up investing yeah. and it was sort of like his demise which i i could see that over time yeah. as you grow more you kind of maybe you're more so around other investors you're listening to other opinions more you're potentially you uh you're worrying about you know macro factors more and that's influencing your mm-hmm. uh investing process yeah that happened with me i got involved in lots of things they made money um they did okay but the truth is that when you net out the expenses that you have on them the time you spend on them they're not better than if i held on to um, some stocks that I invested in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. There are a lot more activity, a lot more work, and they might be marginally worse by a couple of percent a year. I would say that I haven't gone exhaustively through it, but what like I sampled from some, which is you know biased, I did it from my own memory, but I have written about that and stuff. And in several cases, if I had stuck with stocks that I bought to hold in the early 2000s through a period of the next five, six, seven years, whatever, instead of doing things like related hedges and all sorts of stuff like that, um, I would have gotten maybe a few percent better results before the costs of it, which Mm -hmm. are a little bit higher. um, And in addition to that, would have not been distracted into doing those things and all that, spending all the time on it. Where's the fine line though between, you know, so you said not focusing on statistical things, right? But where's the fine line between not paying for a crummy business and not paying too much for even a good business or whatever, like just through the investing process. Yeah, it's not really a difference between like value investing and what I'm talking about. Um, The difference is common sense. So it's that you shouldn't overrule your own common sense. Uh, so sometimes you find things and you go, this is a bargain, even if people don't think it is a bargain, Mm -hmm. um, even if it doesn't show up statistically is that the example I give all the time is DreamWorks animation, which is weird to people because the stock only like doubled or a little more than doubled or whatever from the price that I might've been able to pay for it. But the reason why that's a real common sense one is, you know, Buffett's talked about the Washington Post and he said like you could go out on a rowboat into the middle of the Atlantic and hold an auction and you could sell it for more than it was trading for in the market. And that was basically true of DreamWorks Animation. I didn't think that a studio like that could be sold at a price like that. And that's common sense. And you might be able to find that somewhere in your area about land there or about a casino or about a, um, you know, whatever thing that that a media property that sells like he was looking at um, in a local area, what would it be worth that kind of thing? What would this bank be worth to another bank? What would this insurer be worth? You know, things like that. And uh, you could overrule that. And one of the examples I gave is that on the numbers, DreamWorks animation, I don't think was ever priced to book that would have screened as incredibly cheap, never very expensive, but not incredibly cheap. And on the EV to EBITDA, I don't think it would have either. But as a movie studio, I think anyone knowledgeable about movie studios would have said, this is actually really interesting, or at least it's very cheap. And by the way, it, that stock like more than doubled and was sold out and stuff after a string of flops, like, mm-hmm. like everything that could go wrong did go wrong with them. And that still happened. So it gives you an idea that if they had had some hits or something, it could have been very successful. It just gives you an idea that not I'm not saying that everyone would have said you should buy it. But I think everyone in the industry analyzing it would have said it's cheap. And that's the interesting thing too, right? Because we've spoken to CEOs before and they mm-hmm. talk about how they maybe would think about acquiring other businesses in their industry. Right. And they think about it a lot differently than everybody listening would. Yeah. And that's what's funny because sometimes you'll talk to CEOs and stuff and you'll be like, why don't you acquire anything? They're like, everything's too expensive. Mm-hmm. The market doesn't think that way. But the CEOs in some of these industries think, well, I can't buy anything. Everyone wants way too much money for this. It's impossible. Um, and that should be a sign that maybe the industry's stocks are overvalued if, if that's the case. But people don't think about it the same way. They still use the comps of the, what's mm-hmm. you know they're selling for in the market and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Got it. So... I guess in wrapping up, right, for individuals that maybe they have, so they they like investing, they, you know, really much think uh, like a private uh, investor would, right? Mm -hmm. If you were to acquire another business, take the market out of it, they understand some accounting. What advice would you give to them 
um, to really, you know, speed up that learning curve? Uh, well, I, well, I would say one of the biggest regrets that I have in that area is not, um, spending as much time talking to and staying in touch with and whatever people who I thought were, um, impressive people or knew what they were talking about or something in terms of whether they're capital allocators or finance related people or whatever. Um, because if you follow those people, you'll see their names pop up again and again in interesting situations and stuff. So I should have followed some people more closely. I did more than some people do, but if you find someone who's interesting and impresses you try, if you know them personally and stuff, then definitely develop that. But other than that, if you just follow them and see what they're doing, often that will guide you to the things because the, if you follow a person, you get a lot more of that common sense sort of mm -hmm. thing because they will analyze an industry. Let's say that they're big in gambling or something. They will analyze that or hotels or whatever. They will analyze that industry and will understand the economics of it and will do deals and things that make a lot of sense that way. And so you can follow that, learn from that and see what they're doing. So often capital allocators, like we talked about Landry's and, and that mm -hmm. book and everything. I was actually just going to bring it up. Yeah. Or, or Buffett, what, how does he think, you know, go back through his history of how he allocated capital or uh, John Malone or whatever, go through their whole history and how did they think about deals? How did they build those things up? And, um, and those weren't hedge fund managers, right? I mean, but, I mean, they all thought probably differently because, you know, they had a permanent capital structure. You know, Landry's, for example, right. when you're basically a, a restaurant holding company, he values restaurants probably differently than um, you know, the market would. And we know that because he took his company private. Right. <laughs> you know, he's like, mm -hmm. oh, the market's valuing Landry's at a crazy multiple. He went and he bought it, the company out 100% himself. Now he owns it, you know, himself. Yeah, both the big NASCAR companies took their companies private. The same, basically same sort of thing as, as uh, Landry's. They took it public at a time that it was really popular so they could take advantage of that. And then they took a, a, a private at a time when it was uh, out of favor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but follow those people and how do they build value and stuff over time and get a better understanding of the capital allocation that way and all all of that sort of thing get away more from the market sorts of things of just focusing on the what stocks are out there all the time mm -hmm. um now you have to read annual reports all the time and stuff um but you don't have to really watch what's happening in the market or have a strong opinion about that i do think that people watching of people just the people impress you like um 19 out of 20 people that you come across meet whatever are not gonna be of any interest but you will sometimes and pretty much immediately realize that someone has a really interesting mind or whatever and if they do you should really pay attention to them and follow them and just learn about anything they do and i can't tell you how many times i've seen very small companies things like that where that change uh, whether it's a change of management or whatever it might be, really takes it in a different direction and you want to follow those. And sometimes it's an obscure stuff. Some, it's not all stuff that's covered in the Wall Street Journal and stuff. You just be on the lookout for people who are doing unusual things that way. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that is capital allocation stuff, but creating value. Like, you know, besides just thinking of what makes a stock go up over 10, 15, whatever years, um, even things like when I mentioned Activision and stuff, one reason why I was interested in Activision, the main reason was that I thought their attitude about capital allocation was totally different than Electronic Arts. So the two companies were not that dissimilar in some ways, but I thought here's one company that has the right attitude about capital allocation. Here's one that has completely the wrong attitude. And actually by that point, I think Electronic Arts had been a much more successful company, but just reading about each of them. Mm -hmm. Electronic arts really sounded like you don't want to be involved with the way they think of creating um, that. And uh, Activision actually sounded like really impressive that way in terms of how they were going to allocate capital. Mm -hmm. And then I would add from my perspective, and again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but 
do scuttlebutt in-person trips, Mm -hmm. separate the business from the financials has been incredibly helpful for me. But also, I think it's also been helpful because I get to do it with you (laughs) and, you know, you know, spend a lot of time and how you think about stuff. So cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, If you want to sign up, I'm going to change it. Actually, app is just, we'll just separate it. www.focuscompounding.com slash app, $7.95 a month, Uh, a bunch of behind the scene type of videos. It's going to be a lot of fun. article for me every single day. Article from him. word article every single day day there's behind the scenes videos and then the podcast backlog episodes Mm -hmm. you get 200 episodes in the archives yeah and then focus compounding the website is just strictly stock write-ups so that is the difference if people are like well what is this so www.focuscompounding.com slash app i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast